I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with experts from AccuWeather and from around the world. Bringing you behind-the-scenes information, stories, and news on the weather, climate change, and the outdoors. Covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now, here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist, Dean DeVore. Welcome in, friends, to Episode 8 of our winter series. The final weekend of solar winter is upon us. By the way, this time next week, we'll find out this coming Tuesday what our friends Punxsutawney Phil, Staten Island Chuck, and all the other various sundry groundhogs and rodents will give us the answer to their view of whether winter continues for another six weeks. Well, at least on the calendar, we know it will. But I'll tell you what, this weekend winter is being uh, really bad along the eastern seaboard, and folks need to pay attention to this forecast for late Friday into Saturday and beyond as uh, the folks along the eastern seaboard, New York City up through New England, are going to get bombarded with one of the strongest winter nor'easters and blizzard situations that we've seen in a long time. So we're going to be talking with senior meteorologist Dave Dombeck and director of forecast operations Dan DePodwin actually in our first race of focus segment like we did last week because the weather is so important. Our normal subject that we were going to cover this week we'll put to the second segment, but it's one that I think you'll be interested in, especially if you've got time to listen during the storm this weekend. I know for myself, bird watching and bird feeding have been a large part of my life, and we're going to be joined by an expert in bird migration, aeroecology, bioacoustics, radar ornithology, and climate change, senior research associate Dr. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology will join us with some questions that I had about the decrease in numbers of songbirds that I've been seeing in my feeders this winter and some other issues, including how they're using radar, weather radar, to track bird migration. That's coming up in our second segment. But first, we'll talk about the storm on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Looks like in some ways it could be one for the record books. What it will do is immobilize a large part of the northeast of New England here, especially through the day Saturday and even into Saturday night, early Sunday, with copious amounts of snow, wind, coastal flooding, and everything else. Let's talk about this storm with senior meteorologist Dave Dombeck and director of forecast operations Dan DePodwin from AccuWeather here on Everything Under the Sun. And so as we take a look at this developing, amazing terrible storm that is going to be impacting the northeast and especially new england with monumental snow amounts and problems i wanted to bring in senior meteorologist dave dombeck and our director of forecast operations dan DePodwin, to kind of talk about the storm as this podcast drops midday on friday and going into the weekend gentlemen i know uh, all three of us have been watching this carefully over the last week accuweather has been in the lead in terms of talking about snowfall amounts and impacts of the storm since uh, the beginning of the week we saw it and 
you know, we got some uh, kind of trepidation there in the middle of the week with the modeling going a little wonky and giving us some pause to wonder if we were on the right track. But my goodness, over the last couple of days, as we've looked at this storm, it is uh, going to be incredible in terms of its impact. You know, one thing I've been stressing, Dave and Dan, is we look at uh, the way that we talk about storms. And I think so many people so many times right away just go to the number of how much snow is going to fall in a storm and think that's the only thing about impact. Well, the numbers of this storm, especially as you go up to New England, are just crazy that we're looking at one to two, maybe possibly three feet or more. But even with that, you add the wind and the temperatures. I think this is one of the coldest situations I've seen on a nor'easter going into it where we haven't worried about mixing in places like New York City or up to the the coast of uh, New England. But the amount of snow, the cold, and we could see people and cars and houses and buildings buried under feet of snow and also drifts. What an incredible storm. Um, I'm going to start with Dave. Uh, He's the most senior of us all here and been around a little bit. But have you seen anything like this in recent memory? This harkens back almost to the blizzard of 78, Dave. Yeah, the blizzard of 78 or the blizzard of 93. Of course, the 93 blizzard is more of an inland, you know, in the Appalachians uh, storm. But no, you're right. Uh, This is a classic. This is old fashioned winter here. I mean, you can't get more textbook uh, than this. It is snow or no. There's no sleet no freezing rain no rain no mixing it's snow and just a matter of how much and you're right with the temperatures this is a lot of times you talk about a blizzard or blizzard conditions and we might be talking about a storm that has it's snowing and it's 32 degrees or 30 degrees i mean we're talking about places where it's going to be snowing and it might be close to 20 or 18 or 21 or whatever so these are some very cold temperatures Uh, the the snow consistency is going to be drier uh, which makes it much easier for the wind to just blow that around and drift it and whip it around and and reduce visibilities. This storm is going to deepen incredibly, you know, from from one o'clock Friday to to one o'clock p.m. on Saturday. This thing deepens like something like 35 millibars. Let's talk about that real quick, because that's the throwing out the bombogenesis and the bomb cyclone. Mm-hmm. Um, so. The, the the benchmark for that is a 24 millibar drop in 24 hours. Now, for those of us that don't think in millibars and look at our uh, just wall barometer, that's 0.71 inches of mercury. Um, and that's a big drop. This could even exceed that almost by a degree of two in terms of how much it'll be deepening, at least a, a, by one and a half times. So that's how much power you're going to get. And when you get that kind of increasing uh, deepening of a storm, Uh, It leads to uh, snowfall rates. I think, Dan, that's the biggest uh, situation that I see. There's going to be snowfall rates, especially in a zone, just say north and east of New York City up to New England, two, three, four inches of an hour as the height of the storm, especially on Saturday morning. Yeah, there's a lot of concerns that you've brought up with this storm, Dean, and the snowfall rates is certainly one of them where we're talking several inches of snow per hour in some parts of uh, eastern or even central Long Island through much of southeastern New England. And it looks like that will start probably that heavy snowfall will begin somewhere right around or just before a couple hours before daybreak in parts of Long Island and coastal uh, New England and then spread northeast throughout the day on Saturday. Really much of the day is probably blizzard conditions in many parts of southeastern New England. And these snowfall rates, if you are traveling at all late tonight, would 
recommend you don't do that late Friday night because of the fact that it will go downhill rapidly. And this is when you can see uh, cars and vehicles stranded on the roads. Yeah, we've uh, seen too much of that over the last couple of years here where people just aren't paying attention or whatever, but they've got good warning. The other thing that's interesting to this, Dave, is there's snow breaking out ahead of the main system. Then we've been seeing that as uh, we drop this podcast throughout uh, southeast Pennsylvania up to New York City, and I think it goes up into uh, southern New England a little bit. Um, that snow, while areas north and west of the coastal areas aren't going to see as much and the amounts of this, and that's been another key issue that's where was that back edge going to be and how um, how much of a gradient from zero to plowable over just a few miles in some situations on that back edge. But I think there's a little bit more enhancement now that we get into this evening. Places like the Poconos where we weren't expecting as much may still have some problems uh, overnight with this cold snow that may pile up a couple of inches away from the main center of the storm. So a lot of folks are going to have impact the closer you are to the coast. Obviously, you ramp up those effects with the amount of wind and snow and those higher snowfall amounts, Dave. You're right, Dean. This this uh, event today, this snow that's happening today uh, on Friday here is um, that's the that's the warm up or that's the appetizer, more or less, before the, the main the course. Prelude. I mean, yeah, the prelude. But it's it's enough to, you know, it, it, it certainly was enough to cause some slippery road conditions and even some accidents and so forth. So. Uh, that's certainly not to be taken lightly, but you're right. This the gradient in snowfall, the amount of snow um, that falls is going to vary. I mean, just tremendously over a relatively short distance. And that's what we were faced with all week long, building up to this storm. Uh, now, finally, there's there's a lot more confidence in this, you know, uh, in the modeling and 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 how we feel about how things are going to evolve. There's always going to be curveballs that could be thrown at us by the atmosphere, which always will happen. Uh, but just as recently as Wednesday of this week, even Thursday, there was still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, consternation and a relatively low amount of confidence in our forecast um, because of all the split in the models and all the, 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 the different pieces of energy that we're dealing with with this storm. Because this podcast is dropping midday Friday and it will be lasting all through uh, the weekend. Don't want to get necessarily in a lot of specifics, but I want to talk generalities with you two now. In terms of amounts, I think uh, that foot line is running right along maybe the I-95 corridor um, up along uh, through New York City. I think it's going to be awfully close in the city. I think some of the eastern boroughs could do uh, that foot. And then you're going to ramp it up to one to two feet on Long Island. And then that one to two feet zone goes up into southern parts of uh, Connecticut and up into New England. And then there's probably some enhancement once we get into tomorrow where there could be about a two to three foot zone. Right now we have that kind of just north and west of uh, Boston and down through Providence. And so uh, general amounts, that's one thing. Uh, you add winds that could gust 50 to 70 miles per hour, especially along that immediate coastline blizzard conditions. We could be talking in New England drifts that cover the first story up to the second story of a building, of your house, of mm -hmm. buildings in downtown Boston. We could uh, bury cars. I mean, they may have to get front loaders out in New England to get rid of some of the snow as it falls and it has to be cleaned up as we go later Saturday. Well, I don't think they'll be doing any cleanup. It'll still be going on Saturday, but into Sunday and Monday. I mean, the cleanup of this could be taking uh, several days. And we haven't even talked about the coastal flooding. I think uh, sometimes mm -hmm. when we're talking about blizzards, we kind of move that. We It's a normal thing we talk about in uh 
in a nor'easter like this because this is what this is a super pumped up blizzard nor'easter but uh, all those places from the jersey shore up through long island and then up into the the coast of new england are going to have tremendous uh, coastal inundation and also uh, some overwash in places the snow is i think dean gave a really good summary of where we expect the heaviest snow to fall i think also don't forget about places like the jersey shore as dean just mentioned where you know they don't typically get a lot of foot snowstorms and this has the potential for mm-hmm. it to be right around or even just over a foot really the entire length of the yeah, jersey City shore all the way up right it's absolutely um all the way it's going to be a, a a pretty crazy time on the beach during on saturday there and also even west of there where we're not expecting a foot, but three to six inches or even just above six uh, can cause certain, you know, a lot of issues and certainly be plowable and cause difficult travel in places like Philadelphia through Wilmington down into much of the uh, Delmarva and maybe even some lingering snow in the uh, Virginia Tidewater area. So it's going to extend further south in the Outer Banks may see a little snow, too. So that coastal section, northeast North Carolina, also eastern Virginia can have travel problems with even a few inches of snow from this storm. Dave, talk about the coastal flooding impact. Yeah, as for the coastal flooding, uh, the one thing to keep in mind is um, sometimes we we have a nor'easter, a classic nor'easter that's coming right up the coastal plain or just offshore, and the gradient wind, the winds tend to be more onshore. They tend to be more east or northeast. With this one, with the location of the storm clearly being like well offshore, it's 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 exploding uh, rapidly. It's it's deepening, but the orientation of where it is offshore, that's going to mean the winds, the actual surface winds are going to tend to be more northerly as opposed to northeast. Maybe a little bit of a northeast component to that as you get into New England for a time and for New York City eastward. But so the places that are going to get the worst coastal flooding are the where the, the shape of the coast is and it's facing to the north or northeast. Yeah, Any north of the south facings, Island, right? Yeah, north, north shore, shore of Long Island, the right. Twin Forks out there, obviously Cape Cod, the north end of Cape Cod. Any place where the coast is shaped in such a way that it's facing somewhere to the north. They're the places that are going to get pounded the worst. And the thing about the North Shore of Long Island, not only do you get it there, but then it funnels back because Long Island Sound kind of tapers back towards the city. Mm -hmm. So those uh, Bronx and Queens and those areas can get a lot of coastal flooding even into the city. And you're right, the North Shore of the Cape, right? Uh, Yes. And then Providence in those areas, Providence Town in those areas will probably get it as well. I think uh, overwash and 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 I don't think anybody's going to be traveling too much on Saturday, but you add that to the uh, snow that is going to cause visibilities of zero or uh, not much better than that. I mean, this is it's going to be dangerous to be out and about. I mean, I think that's the thing that I if I was telling friends and family and I'm in the path of this storm, even on that western flank where we're still a little uncertain of just how much the cold temperatures and the slipperiness it's going to be dangerous to be out in places later Friday night through the day, Saturday, Saturday night. Anything you guys want to add uh, before uh, we uh, we wrap this segment up? Because I know there's going to be a lot of folks that need information and the best thing to do. I think we've been pushing our AccuWeather app uh, with our winter cast, which really keeps us uh, giving us the best information in terms of probabilities, in terms of snowfall amounts, gets you in in, in line with all the impacts. Uh, so this is one to just keep an eye constantly on our AccuWeather app and our AccuWeather.com website and all our great media partners out there in our AccuWeather network and AccuWeather Now. 
there's all kinds of places to get AccuWeather information. Just a quick thought, Dean, and this is more or less post-storm. Uh, Something to keep in mind, we've got so much snow that's going to be on the ground in parts of the Northeast after this storm. Uh, we know that the pattern is going to change, at least temporarily, Next week, we're going to get a big warm up coming in the middle and latter part of next week. But with all the snow on the ground, that might might, uh, at least to a degree, temper the warm up somewhat. So if we're let's, for example, in you know, whatever location we're expecting, the high temperature might be 55 or 60. We might have to trim those temperatures back by five degrees or so just because of all the snow on the ground. That's something to consider down the pike here as we get into next week. I think Dean and David said it well. Also, with the warm up next week, that can also have fog associated with that. So definitely something to keep mm-hmm. an eye on with uh, fog associated with these warm ups uh, and also cold after the storm. You know, we, we talk about the warm up in the middle of next week, but also a cold day Sunday. Also, probably still a bit breezy in New England. So definitely want to be uh, bundled up if you're out and about and. Uh, Hopefully take it slowly if you're shoveling. Even down to New York City, I think there's still going to be blowing and drifting in the open areas uh, around New York City all the way into Sunday morning. And you're right. um, It's going to be awful. Well, I know. uh, Thanks for the time. I know all of us are extremely busy, overparked and over uh, (laughs) overworked here. And we're all going to be working hard through the day tomorrow on Saturday with the storm at its height and 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 beyond. Thank you so much for all that you guys uh, have done behind the scenes. I know. uh, AccuWeather. I know you're proud as director of forecast operations, Dan. And Dave, you're kind of one of our czars in terms of philosophy and things like that. It's got to be, I know it's a tough storm to to look at and to forecast, but there's some rewarding aspects to making sure as far out as we were with alerting people that this was the real deal and going to be a big deal. I'm not sure maybe at the initial stages we knew exactly where that real deal was going to be, but I think we can be proud of the way we've handled the storm at AccuWeather here over the last few days. I was going to say, being weather weenies, this is what we live for. Yeah, this is our <laughs> right? Dan DePodwin, Dave Dombeck, actually a little version of the 3Ds here with Dean DeVore. Thanks so much for joining us on Everything Under the Sun. To give you an idea how monumental the storm is, as we're dropping this podcast midday Friday, it looks like about 11 million people are under blizzard warnings and over 36 million additional people are under winter storm warnings. Amazing situation. You want to keep it locked to your AccuWeather source, whether it's on your app, on your website, AccuWeather.com. I know I'll be on 1010 Winds and WBZ during the morning on Saturday covering the storm, and we'll also be covering you around the clock on our AccuWeather Network and our AccuWeather Now, and certainly on our all our AccuWeather Media partners will be keeping you up to date about this monumental storm. Our next segment coming up is one that's near and dear to my heart. I've been a bird watcher and a bird fan since my father started taking me to bird club meetings in Lancaster County back when I was a kid. We'll talk about that and more with Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology about bird migration trends, numbers, and all kinds of information that if you're a birder like me, you're going to love to hear. That's up next on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Plan your day with confidence and find out what the weather means for you. Join AccuWeather meteorologist Bernie Reno Monday through Friday for Weather Insider. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Episode 8 of our Winter Series of Everything Under the Sun. As we shift gears now, again, this was supposed to be our first Rays of Focus segment this week, but with the impending blizzard, we decided that it was a much better situation to talk about the weather up front. But now here's something near and dear to my heart. Birds and bird watching, and even more so in the last few years, bird feeding. And I'm not the only one at AccuWeather. A lot of our 
crew and staff and team members. A lot of our meteorologists are avid bird watchers and bird feeders. And we've all been noticing and talking about a decrease in the numbers of songbirds feeding at our feeders this winter. And I wanted to get some ideas of why that may be happening. I know that we've talked about some mysterious bird illnesses and I know uh, the general trend has been for a reduction in birds over the last couple of decades across the United States. So we welcome in Dr. Andrew Farnsworth, Senior Research Associate from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, to talk to us about the amount of birds that we may be seeing at our feeders, how we can uh, get involved with bird watching and bird casting and and, uh, just uh, talking and, and interacting with peoples and professionals so they can get a better idea, too, of how birds are migrating. In fact, they're using something that's weather-related, weather radar, to track bird migration. Let's welcome Dr. Andrew Farnsworth in to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. All right, Andrew, it's really good to spend some time with you. I just want to kind of talk about how I got into loving birds, and it goes back to my father. Herbert dragged me to the Lancaster County Bird Club meetings every Friday, once a month, with a caveat that if I made it through, I would get Friendly's ice cream afterwards. <laughs> so, but it was amazing how even at that young age, I kind of enjoyed watching, you know, back then you'd go to the meeting and we'd talk about, they'd talk about their various trips that they would take to to watch and a lot of slides of uh, all their other great finds of, of the birds and the, and the stuff. And so I learned so much back then. My father was avid. He would carry his book. And as we would travel across the country, he'd mark off every bird that he saw that he hadn't seen before. And so fast forward, here I am now at 55, and I've really gotten back into it myself, really watching, enjoying, loving, feeding the birds, especially, I think, with the pandemic the last couple of years, to me, it's I found that uh, things like gardening and enjoying the outdoors and including helping our feathered friends um, get some good food in them has been something that's important to me. And wanted to talk to you and the and the great folks at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, who I know real well because I participated a couple of times in Feeder Watch, which is a great program that you guys have, which helps you kind of keep track of migration and those kinds of things. So it's it's really great to have you excited about this topic. Have lots of questions for you. Are you ready to sit down with us and talk about all this uh, great uh, bird watching and bird appreciation here this morning? Absolutely, Dean. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, the one thing that really precipitated me wanting to do this conversation is just, you know, we have so many folks at AccuWeather, so many of our meteorologists who enjoy what I do in feeding the birds and watching them. We've all noticed a decrease in numbers this last year or two. Now, at the beginning of this winter, I kind of chalked it up personally where I live in central Pennsylvania. It was a rather warm start of the winter. I mean, vegetation, I'm still getting things trying to grow again in my garden there in December when we were touching 40, 50, 60 degrees. And so I was uh, attributing some of it to a preponderance of of available natural foods still. We hadn't had snow or uh, cover Now, in the last couple of weeks, as we've turned into old man winter rearing its ugly head here in the Northeast, we have a lot of snow cover in the ground. We got six inches out the door this morning, and and I'm seeing a little bit of an increase, but still not the numbers of general songbirds that we saw maybe a couple of years ago. So I wanted to talk first about that. Are there some general trends in terms of, I know I was seeing stories a couple of years ago where we had lost one, one out of every four birds in the last couple of decades in North America. 
Is that trend continuing? Has it been exacerbated here in the last couple of years? Just, uh, Andrew, some general thoughts on that. These are these are good questions, and these kinds of observations are, I think, are really important. So uh, let me try to talk to the two uh, two primary elements here. So yeah, that general trend of, of bird population declines over the last 50 years, that's something um, that many ornithologists and obviously many, many birders and naturalists and people that just like birds are seriously concerned about. It's a big issue, obviously, uh, talking about an enormous number of birds that we've lost over that time. And that's a pattern we're still worried about. So are we still seeing it? You know, are the, the causes of that still occurring? Habitat loss, collisions with buildings, cats, pollution, etc. Yeah. And is that still decreasing bird populations, not evenly across all birds, but still decreasing them generally? I'm sure it is, no question. But the more local kinds of issues where some winters or some uh, series of winters or different times of the year, you may not see as many birds. There are a lot of local variables that go into that. Some of it absolutely is weather dependent. Warm winters, uh, snowy winters, etc., can either concentrate uh, as in the latter or actually disperse birds in the former case. Um, so it's it's a little difficult to tell, but it's one of the reasons that the observation and sort of being aware of these kinds of patterns and tuning into them is really important. What's going on in central Pennsylvania? I'm sure that a big part of it is the kinds of changes we've seen in the last couple of years in particular, maybe even over the last decade or so in terms of the way the suburbs have grown, right. uh, the changing winter temperatures, generally warmer. A lot of those things could go into it. Um, but there are these kinds of local you know, things that we don't yet understand exactly why um, birds may be distributed in one place or another, particularly at a given time. But there also may be other natural factors too, Andrew, like, you know, I may have a, a preponderance of some birds of prey that are uh, kind of scaring the birds a little bit uh, local to me. And I'm actually yep. would say that I've seen more hawks active and more. Uh, we've got osprey. We've got a bald eagle uh, in the valley uh, down here over yep. my house to my to my west here. So is that something, are those numbers actually okay and up? I mean, is that something too that could be creating an imbalance here with the smaller songbirds? How how does that interaction play out? There are definitely some interactions like that. Cooper's hawk in particular, that's a bird that people see uh, around their bird feeders uh, quite a lot and around their homes. That's a bird that um, in the last 10, 20, 30 years has really increased uh, in a number of areas of the U.S. And as I mentioned, these population declines generally, there are species and there are groups of birds that are doing quite well, that are actually adapting quite well to, to humans and the kinds of changes we make to the landscape. Some raptors uh, do a great job. Red-tailed hawks in cities like New York City, where I live, peregrine falcon. These are birds that are now daily occurrences, actually, right. you know, some numbers. They so, even get names on buildings and people appreciating <laughs> them and don't want to watch it you know they, they yeah, yeah I, 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 i'm on 1010 wins in new york city every morning and you know every once in a while we get that where the bird that they don't want to move on the on the ledge or something <laughs> like that Definitely. They're superstars. They get, they get, uh, you know, big points on social media often. <laughs> no question. Um, when you look at this as someone who studied this now through uh, all the years that you have, um, I know, you know, a couple of things that we talked about before we started the, the official interview here is one thing that, you know, we can do some things ourselves to help this trend and be careful and mindful of uh, light pollution, 
Uh, And I do the analogy where we hear a lot of stories about folks along the coast in Florida need to be careful about leaving their lights on on their porch overnight because of the uh, sea turtles being drawn. These birds can be drawn to artificial light situations and and that can put them vulnerable, right, to, to problems when they're not supposed to be really active at night, but thinking that there's enough light because of the day. Is that is that the whole scenario behind trying to control the light pollution issue? It's almost a scenario. So a huge percentage of bird migration happens at night um, on the order of, you know, uh, two and a half to five billion birds uh, every year over the U.S. So enormous number of birds on the move at wow. night. Light is an extremely strong and very powerful stimulus. Uh, so, so the kinds of tools that birds need to migrate at night, being able to orient and navigate by the stars, the magnetic field, etc., those things are really short-circuited by light for various reasons. So where you have places where there is a lot of illumination at light, similar to what happens with the disorientation of sea turtles coming ashore attracted to light, that attraction and disorientation with birds migrating at night can often translate into one, uh, directly collisions with buildings uh, where they can't see the glass or perceive the glass properly, or indirectly by bringing them into these areas where there are lots of hazards like buildings or cats or other things. And then the next morning after they migrate, when they're looking for habitat to stop over, then they collide with structures. So either way, taking away the light, reducing that light pollution, which of course is is good for a lot of other things aside from just protecting birds. That's something that we're advocating. And and we've we've tried to do quite a bit of research on it, uh, trying to connect the the science of the natural history of bird migration with then how we can alter human behavior in terms of turning out lights and eliminating that light pollution to protect migrating birds. And of course, the benefits of saving energy and um, uh, promoting human health and, and obviously sea turtles and other organisms as well. So it's a it's really kind of a win-win all around. There are ways we can adjust to what we do um, that have real benefits in terms of the environment. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Farnsworth, Senior Research Associate at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, who uh, is uh, expertise bird migration, aeroecology, bioacoustics, climate change. And this is the thing I want to get into right now because I use weather radar a lot to predict where uh, the storms are going, where the rain's going to be most intense. And now uh, the bird and the uh, ornithology sciences are using radar to track bird migration. Tell me a little bit about that, Andrew. Are you using my same weather radars to do that, or is it other radars that are being used? We use one and the same. So the the NEXRAD system or the WSR-88D, the, the 143 weather surveillance radars that are distributed around the contiguous U.S., those are awesome at detecting meteorological phenomena. We know that. They also happen to be really excellent at detecting biological activity in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so we can use them to study bird migration. In particular, it's valuable for using it to study nocturnal migration when all this incredible movement is happening. So uh, how far up is all that incredible movement going uh, above us that you know that we can't see it or hear it uh, is it going up really high or is it or is it just because it's dark we're just not sensing it as much 
That's a good question. So it varies a lot. Um, there's a really large pulse of that movement that happens within about 500 or 1,000 meters of the ground. Um, however, it does go up at times, depending on where you are, and also on the species, to three, 4,000, even more, 4,500 or 5,000 meters above the ground. So talking about, you know, like the height of a very, very tall mountain that birds are far, far up in the atmosphere. Wow. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite amazing. Most of it is much closer to the surface of the earth, but there are places and times where birds regularly are migrating in that uh, quite high altitude uh, stratum. Now, those of us that are watching single site radars as much as we do, there's a little situation that happens that we see on the radar and it looks like a little bright blast. And I know there's been debate over the years, but Honestly, it it comes down to that's that time when a lot of birds may have sat down or kind of laid down for the night. And then the first light of day is coming. And that's when it's uh, movement palooza and the radar is catching that. So there's this little flash on the radar some mornings when nothing else is going on. It's like, whoa, what is that? Oh, the birds are active now. Yeah, there are, these, there are a couple of really striking patterns. So if you watch the, the general pattern of nocturnal bird migration is that probably about 30 or 45 minutes after sunset, local sunset, there's this bloom of very uniform looking activity on radar imagery that we can identify as birds that are migrating for the night. And that will continue over the course of the night and gradually it'll diminish. And then after sunrise or very close to sunrise, once that nocturnal pattern has changed, we do see these rings form, these these sort of big bursts that you're talking about. And there are particular species that roost in areas where they're emerging from roosts right at that time of the day. So it can be purple martins, which are swallows, uh, uh, small birds that they eat insects, uh, other swallow types as well. It can be blackbirds or crows. And these kinds of patterns, uh, they're very identifiable and noticeable Mm -hmm. on radar. And they often um, will occur uh, from year to year. So it's a way... Uh, You can think about using radar not only to study nocturnal migration and thinking about how many birds are moving every night, but when you look at these roosts that are happening uh, during the day and and the birds that, excuse me, that happen at night and the birds leave them during the day, it's a way you can think about, well, how many birds are in these areas? How how often are they using them? um, How are they changing over time? It's it's a very cool phenomenon that uh, that you can study with radar in addition to kind of the, the traffic that's happening as well. You know, one other thing too, before I talk a little bit, I want you to talk about, you know, how great, because I said, I, I, I love the Cornell lab of ornithology and what they do and how to participate. But um, one thing that we started hearing about was this kind of mysterious bird disease last year, where we were seeing birds uh, that were being found dead near feeders. And there was some kind of mystery about what was going on there. Um, I haven't heard that about that as much this last year or so. Uh, any updates on that? And also, maybe unrelated, but somewhat, is I'm starting to see some signs and some stories about increased concerns about spotting avian flu starting to come back, uh, being uh, monitored in parts of the United States. So maybe that first thing is, was, was there any was there any correlation or, or anything figured out why we were seeing the, those mysterious deaths of some songbirds at feeders? over the last year or so? Yeah, I haven't heard what the latest on that is, but but one thing that was that's really clear from these patterns that we see that, you know, birds are these great bioindicators, right? They because we can see them so well and hear them and ubiquitous 
I mean, the canary in the coal mine, you know, euphemism is real, right? right. Uh, so when it comes to these kinds of illnesses and, and these sorts of situations, it's really important to try to get, get eyes on them and obviously get samples and so on. I haven't heard, we'll have to check back in on, on what the latest is on what was happening last year. But regarding avian influenza, which obviously is a, is a potentially serious issue that, that a number of people are interested in tracking, um, there were some reports uh, earlier this year. Uh, from South Carolina, there is the possibility of transmission between wild birds and, say, um, birds. So it's one of these situations very similar to what we've been looking at when it comes to COVID and the zoonotic right. diseases that come from animals to humans or vice versa. Um, it's something we pay a lot of attention to. And uh, obviously, it's something we need to pay a lot of attention to. Is there a, a major threat happening right now? I haven't heard anything that indicates that. That, but it's just something that's always, as we now know from our experiences in the last two years, it's something we have to keep an eye on. And it's really important to keep eyes on this sort of thing. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has uh, so many great things that um, can educate you, your children, if you want to, those of you that uh, have uh, homeschooling in your family, a lot of great resources. I know one thing that uh, Andrew works on is called, and I love it, BirdCast. It's kind of like this real-time look at bird migration. I know it's uh, with your folks, Colorado State University, UMass Amherst, uh, working together. Tell me a little bit about that. If I'm, first time I look at that page, I might be a little bit taken aback by how much information is there. What am I actually seeing there? Am I actually seeing real-time bird migration and what's actually going on? In the skies ahead. Yeah, so during the migration seasons, which broadly speaking are uh, March to May for spring, and then uh, August uh, through October into November for the fall, during those seasons, when you visit the BirdCast site, which is birdcast.info, you'll see two uh, primary, um, really sort of dominant features. One is a bird migration forecast, and one is at night live bird migration maps. So the forecast is all about uh, data that we've analyzed for the last 20 or uh, 25 years relating radar uh, data on bird migration to weather and then using the weather data to forecast the migration intensity. So we can do that now with high confidence and Basically, we can produce a, a 24, 48, or 72-hour forecast of what the bird migration intensity across the uh, contiguous U.S. will be. So that's one of the things that you, every time you visit the website in the spring and fall migration period. Yeah, it's really exciting, I think, to track that just quick because yeah. you know if you live in a uh, what I call a hopover zone where you know you may not see a bird. Uh, through the entire summer, but then they'll come in and out uh, in their migration zone. You can see some really fantastic things that are just pretty rare. So you can kind of get yourself uh, in the ready for that saying, oh, I might see this. I haven't you know, seen that for a year. It, it may be uh, near my feeder, I should uh, keep an eye out for that. Those, that's the kind of way that I use that, right? Is that, is that sound good? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you can use it in conjunction. So the, the birdcast forecast tells you about when there's going to be some really intense movement of birds through your area, over your area. Um, great way of kind of highlighting, okay, I should be attuned to large numbers of birds coming into my area. If you want to know about what those species are, um, because the radar can't tell you what the species are, you can visit another incredible 
incredible project that we have, another site called eBird, eBird.org. And eBird is all about community science um, or citizen scientists, where uh, birders, people that are, are, are observers, can enter their observations of birds. And that database now has over a billion observations. Kind of like the ways, kind of like the ways of bird watching, right? Where you can like report what's going on around you and have it in there for posterity. There's there's so much information. It's got basically all of the world's birds that are still living represented in it. So it's this enormous, powerful community uh, database. And that tells you where and when and how many birds are in particular areas all over the planet. So when it comes to the U.S., the combination of understanding when migration forecasts suggest there's going to be a big movement of birds, and then visiting that eBird site to understand, oh, what birds are in my area generally at this time of year, and even specifically say in the last couple of weeks, um, what uh, what numbers are changing, et cetera. That combination of information is, is great. Whether you're a novice or you're an expert or wherever in between, Taking those kinds of sources of information and then using some of the some of the really cool technology that's now mm -hmm. available, like Merlin, for example, that can identify photos of birds, um, even answer if you answer a few simple questions under uh, tell you what the bird might be and identify mm -hmm. the sound of birds. So if you pick out your smartphone and you hold it up and you're hearing a particular bird, you want to know what it is, um, you can learn what it is. So you've got this incredible combination of resources for education and really appreciating and then learning what's I'm holding around. it up. I got my Merlin app right there. It is, right. it is amazing because, you know, once in a while, I mean, I'm good, but I'm not great. And I'm like, well, I, I think I know what that is, but and then you can, you can do it either by, you know, telling it what colors you see or, Put a photo, take a photo of it, and then it matches it up. It's great stuff. And then Feeder Watch is a great program. I mean, there, there's so many ways to get involved with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And, you know, with with this broad topic and so much going on, maybe overwhelmed at first, but maybe just find your little niche and what you enjoy, whether it's feeding back the information to you and your great folks up there at Cornell or or whatever, uh, so much to do, Andrew, on that website that you can help others and yourselves learn more about this great topic. Yeah, I think that the uh, one of the amazing things about birds in particular is that because they are, are ubiquitous and because they do all of these cool things and they look great and they sound great, um, it's a really awesome vehicle for connecting people with nature and connecting with the world around them, which is only a good thing, um, especially in the technological age in which we are. Remembering that being outside and connecting to the natural world is just essential for kind of feeling good. <laughs> and and um, I think birds are a great opportunity to kind of engage that and to promote that. Obviously, we can, yes, learn a lot from them. But at the bottom line, there's that spark of, wow, that bird's doing something really cool, or I've never seen anything like that. Or like, oh, I had no idea that all these things were flying over my city or my home at night. And there's all of this information that we're learning. We still certainly don't know everything. So um, it's always going to be changing, but it's uh, it can be at your fingertips at this point. It's one of the one of those sort of really cool interfaces between the technologies advancing. You can use it in these incredibly cool ways to then appreciate more what's outside. Incredible technology indeed, Andrew. I can't imagine how my dad would have reacted if I would have been able to, uh, with him on our bird watching expeditions back when I was young, pull up the phone and uh, just kind of track things that way. We had to always carry around the Audubon book and keep that uh, in tow. 
Andrew, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thanks for being with us on Everything Under the Sun. Friends, for all the information that you need to get involved with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and all their information that they uh, get, uh, birds.cornell, C-O-R-N-E-L-L dot E-D-U. That's uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And you can uh, go on to Twitter. Cornell Birds is their Twitter handle. And can follow Andrew and everybody else's work there. A great organization. We hope to have them on again. Interesting stuff. Really appreciated the time with Dr. Farnsworth and the folks at Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Friends, keep a close view on this storm as we go through the weekend. Please heed all warnings and keep track of the AccuWeather forecast minute by minute on your AccuWeather app with the winter cast. It'll keep you up to date with the latest information as we make subtle changes. A storm like this, we sometimes have to make uh, some calls uh, right as the storm's going on in terms of amounts and impact, but we know it's going to be bad and you're going to want to stay tuned to AccuWeather.com and uh, we'll keep you up to date with the latest information. For all of our amazing team members who've been working overdrive on this storm and on a lot of other things, for our executive production team of Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, and for our guests, Dan DePodwin, Dave Dombeck, and Dr. Andrew Farnsworth, I'm your host, Dean DeVore. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week, week nine of our winter series. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com.